0: Hi, my name is Sergeant Vucetic and this is Race and Racism. Today we're going to be recapping uh, the previous lectures and what we talked about in class thus far. Uh, so we have two sets of, well, two readings. Uh, one is a chapter on race and global inequality uh, by uh, David Blamey, Naim Inayatullah. Naim Inayatullah is a professor of political science and specifically the subfield of IR. Uh, at Ithaca College uh, in New York, while uh, Blaney uh, is a professor at Macalester College in the United States. So both of them have been uh, writing uh, about race implicitly or explicitly for a very long time. They're both sort of the deans of critical IR uh, theory, certainly in the United States. Um, And this is a culmination, this chapter is a culmination of of their work uh, over many years. So what what are they saying here? Well, um, they're they're actually recapping the class in many ways. I mean, the, this chapter is a is a is a very good way of uh, uh, providing an overview of what we talked about and preparing you for the final exam. Um, so, uh, so their focus is on on this idea of market outcomes, is, and and you, you will recognize that this is an argument with liberalism and such. In fact, both of the pieces assigned for today are critiques of liberalism. So Blaney and Inaya are saying uh, that contemporary thinking justifies global inequality by linking market outcomes to individual effort and individual skill. So this is very interesting. Um, uh, the Western construction of the Global South or the Third World, uh, is more likely to to be taken as authoritative knowledge uh, simply uh, because of uh, the dominance of a Western perspective uh, provided by Western scholars and uh, provided with either the subtle, subtle, or explicit intention of advocating, defending, or legitimizing Western interest values and and beyond, and so. So, you know, we can, we can use different theoretical perspectives and understand it. One of them is Orientalism by Edward Said. You know all about that. Um, so, you know, in understanding in civilization, uh, the third world would be viewed as uh, anachronistic, reconstructed as Western, ancient, while the West would be modern. Knowledge in the third world is local, parochial, or religious, while in the West is universal and philosophical. Technology, the third world, uh, is basically uh, a place for of consumers and followers, while whereas the West are producers and innovators. In terms of culture, there's a great deal of superstition, uh, parochialism, and folk theory in the third world, while the West is cosmopolitan, rational, scientific problem-solving you can you can basically find all these binaries uh, with respect to the nation state economy work attitudes temporal mindset security war and peace concept of history religion uh, you see these sharp uh, self-conception of the west the scientific rational forward-looking and industrious uh, and whereas the, the the third world lacks all of those things um so so this is classically Orientalist, a term originating in the cultural studies of the 1970s, uh, whereas the West, aka the Occident, uh, offers patronizing representations of the so-called East and East, and specifically the Arab world, according to, uh, according to Said. Um, but uh, what this chapter does uh, is talk About major Western thinkers such as Kant, Hegel, Smith, uh, and they say even Marx uh, rationalizing uh, this inequality by making racialized uh, arguments. Uh, take uh, G.W.F. Hegel, who had some respect for Asian culture but was firm in the belief that others, especially Africans, have not contributed much to history. Uh, and so Adam Smith and Karl Marx produced incisive critiques of how capitalism produces inequality, nevertheless, this critique is coupled with their support of capitalism's progressive historical role, and this historical role is used to explain and validate western society's uh, colonial uh, violence um, so uh, if you if you wish i mean if you wish to learn read more about this, I would really recommend in and Blaney's uh, two thousand and four uh, book international relations and the problem of difference. They link, link these theories of socioeconomic development to modernization theory, which advocates the globalization of Western development strategies, especially its neoliberal, uh, for, uh, its, its neoliberal form. And and to understand development, we should therefore begin by situating modernization theory in the modern colonial encounter itself, paying due attention to both global structures, uh, and the meanings and intentions of actors. So they, they, provide you, I mean, this is, uh, some of the best passages here are on pages 128 and 129. Um, uh, so they say for Smith, Hegel and Marx, quote, there's no colonial violence, no capitalist division of labor that structures the role of actors in well production. And so, uh, yeah, this goes on to uh, page one twenty nine, and then of course they they go into uh, into the problems of international relations theory, which is committed to unit level explanations, which obscure our ability to see the this this unfairness. So to see both global structures and the meanings and intentions of actors, which are determined by colonialism uh, and racism, and and you know we can we can uh, you, you know you can see. You, for those of you who decide to do IR in the graduate school, I mean, you, you, this this will be a very good critique to begin with. Um, so, uh, essentially, the, the the non-West's failure to so-called failure to keep up with the West serves as evidence, quote unquote, that revo- reveals and confirms an underlying hierarchy of capacities and potential potentialities. And and so you have uh, you have uh, in fact. Uh, uh, I mean, this this is based on on a certain taboo, and I've written on this myself uh, within international relations theory, in which you're not supposed to discuss uh, race at all. Um, so uh, I asked you at the very beginning of class if you go on the on 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 the course website, you know, I have an excerpt from a journal, and and it says you know, Journal of Race Race Development. And I want you to to guess and 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 tell me what 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 is the name of that journal? Well, that journal we know uh, today as Foreign Affairs. It was the original journal for American and International Relations Scholarship and its title was Journal of Race Development. The stated purpose of the journal was to present ideas about what the methods that developed peoples and specifically colonial admit, ad, administrators could use to uplift back, backward and underdeveloped races. So, and the contrary to what almost all standard IR textbooks say, the object of inquiry that gave rise to the discipline in international of international relations was not the international so much so much as this interracial. Uh, it was essentially to protect a global white supremacy. And this is something that Mills talks about uh, in in his chapter, which we'll talk about next. So, so the the Inayatullah and Blaney chapter is uh, is. Saying this uh, in a much more eloquent way, I mean essentially um, they 're saying this racializing move is built into the very methods by which we study international politics and specifically global political economy which is which is their their focus um, uh, say you know you should never privilege the causal, uh, causally privileged individual traits and efforts that rule our thinking about why some nations fail and others succeed, um, and so they use uh, Jeffrey Sachs's work uh, as a as a as a as a target. Um, and so, uh, you know, when we think about third world states uh there we we should be um not thinking that you know they are formal sovereign entities responsible for creating their own wealth through their own resources this uh no state is ever strictly sovereign uh canada is not sovereign the uk is not sovereign france is not sovereign sovereignty is always shared but here what they're saying is that We have to consider the historical context. These states are also functionally and hierarchically differentiated as colonizer versus colonized, developed and underdeveloped. And they, you know, they have this story box at the very end of the chapter in which they, you know, uh, invite you to to look at uh, trade patterns uh, about the division of the world, right? Uh, They're astounded by the stickiness of historical patterns when we, you know, recognize that the overwhelming majority of third world locals produce the same products that their colonizers cultivated and extracted often a uh, hundred years ago um, so yeah it's a it's a it's a fabulous book i mean they they introduce you to the work you'll recognize this not not simply as some kind of critique of orientalism or post-colonial critique but specifically a marxist one because they cite books by anivas nishan Joglu, wolf and savrianos as a counterpoint uh to the book by jeffrey zacks and they say well there are good reasons why these books the first group of books is never offered you know in the in the bookstore of the world bank um so uh, yeah, in this in in this latter story, um, the you know the key once again is the long 16th century. This period between the 14th to 16th or 17th centuries uh, was excru- crucial. This is this is what ca- now coming back to the very beginning of the class where we t- talked about Ramon Grossfugel's piece, um, in which uh, you know political, cultural, economic uh, diversity was high. Um, and uh, and what we don't understand is that at that time, uh, political borders were porous and effective, governance disappeared, the further one moves from the seat of, of rule, uh, rulers were usually satisfied with tribute, leaving localized authority structures and economic practices in place. And and, yeah, I mean, it was very hard at that time to talk about developed versus developing world, but then th- there was no such thing as initial state of poverty. And then something, of course, changes, which is uh, colonialism uh, and, and the introduction of, of, of uh, racism to justify it, uh, and, and so slavery and things like that, uh, which we talked about. Um, so, so this eventual uneven development um, is is where most books on development, you know, why some nations fail and others succeed, they begin there. Uh, and, and that's not where we're supposed to begin. We're supposed to begin uh, in the long 16th century. So that's basically what we talked about in, in Lecture 2 uh, and, and throughout the course. So this is a very good recap for you. Now, we're coming back to mills. And we've read Mills' book, and this is a more recent chapter. In fact, this is based on on a talk he's been giving for a very long time, uh, since, uh, I think, let me check, what did he say, since uh, 2011. Um, Yeah, I mean, on global justice, which is uh, remarkable. Um, Yeah, he first gave it... Uh, in Germany in 2011 and and this came out in a book published by um, uh, Cambridge University Press edited by Duncan Bell who's uh, who's an eminent uh, Cambridge historian and my friend and co-author as well and uh, it's a fabulous chapter because it once again talks about uh, the need to engage with uh, what he here calls and is now known as Afro-modern political thought. So the oppositional body of political theory that talks about things such as justice uh, from a perspective of those who do not have justice. And in fact, you know, he says, if we, if we do a proper genealogy of this uh, tradition of thought, we got to start with Kuobna kugono in 1787 former slave who wrote about it i had no idea that you know already um, uh, in the 18th century we have traces of um uh of of work that's critical of um of political theorizing um i've written on this myself you might remember from uh session two uh on on global my my short blog piece on, on global ignorance which actually in which i talk about my own global ignorance well Here's another case of my ignorance. I I didn't know who Kuguano was until I read this chapter by Mills, and I read this stuff. So, yeah, from Kuguano all the way to Du Bois and Fanon, um, you see that um, uh, there's always been uh, a rich body of thought that says, uh, yeah, you know, we can't, uh, the the white political theory and political philosophy gets it all wrong. In fact, he does something very cool at the beginning, I won't, I won't give you any spoilers but he actually doesn't start with black thinkers he starts with someone else completely uh to underline his point that that this is uh uh yeah the the vocabulary uh to think about oppositional uh, version of political theory existed existed and exists everywhere now what are the critiques well much of it uh, revolves around this idea of race, the concept of race itself. So not everybody think that, thinks that there's such a thing as you know global white supremacy. And he says this is legitimate, right? Uh, two scholars can agree that races do not exist in a natural slash biological sense, as well as that our world is characterized by actually existing racism, yet they can still disagree about the best way to conceptualize uh, race. And so on pages 98 and 99, he introduces you, uh, to this, you know, to the philosophy of race, which we talked about before, and he gives you a breakdown of the, these conceptual, uh, conceptual battles. In fact, i provided a diagram on the syllabus to accompany the Mills reading that that uh, helps you uh, understand some of these uh, conceptual debates. They're always about ontology at one level, and this is the branch of philosophy that deals with the issue of, and of the nature of reality. If one is to judge by institutions that help administer justice or wealth, affirmative action policies, such as national census, questionnaires, media, characterizations, whatever, uh, you know that race exists. But if one talks to national scientists, they will say, well, there's no such thing. Race is Ill- an illusion. And we know that, the, we know that phenotypes and genotypes, uh, for example, body uh, hair genes, are not indicative of biological or genetic fixity. Uh, that's, what, that's the answer you would say. But both both perspectives are in fact correct. Race exists as a social phenomenon, which means that it exists as a relation, uh, not a thing. So when we talk, when you say brown people, Caucasians, old stock Canadians, uh, to use uh, Stephen Harper uh, era language uh, in Canada, they do not exist independently of the acts of categorizations, all of which are historically uh, context dependent. So. uh, Alana Lentin's work would tell you that exactly that's the point. The purpose of researching race uh, and how racialization happens is not to determine what race is or is taken to be so much as what race does. That is about the consequences of racialization on the differentiated distribution of power, authority, recognition, wealth, worth, resources, entitlement, and opportunity. So she talks about the performativity of race uh, and that's that, and understanding this is necessary for the success of anti-racist activities. That's the whole point of her book. Uh, so we need to uh, challenge the racism that underpins today, today's societies. And, and to get there, we must first develop an intimate knowledge of how race mutates to fit uh, the contemporary context uh, and time. So how it works as a technology of rule. So that's a bit on, on the Lenten book. Um, so... Um, to go back to this breakdown uh, the philosophy philosophy of race uh, race breakdown uh you know how do we sh- how do we talk about race in the first place well as as mill says uh this is again pages 98 99 uh the relevance of this question is self-evident once we accept the la- that language has the power to reify or naturalize what is socially constructed so most people in the philosophy of race uh, or, or those who follow them implicitly tend to be, tend to be conservationist, a term for a position that racial categories should be conserved for the purposes of policy and politics. In contrast, eliminativists tend to uh, think that uh, you know we shouldn't talk about race. Uh, this includes political liberals who think they live in a colorblind or post-racial societies, conservative polemicists, who think that minorities should yet go over it, get over it, and a relatively small group of social scientists, social theorists who think that the uh, meanings of race could be more effectively subsumed under a nearby category such as class and ethnicity, I don't know Quentin Tarantino, for example, argues that um, when you when you go to the French Republic, you will understand that they are very close to this eliminativist position. Uh, so the state. I'm not talking about French society. Um, so, so he says. Uh, yeah I mean all of this is uh he he provides you a whole listing on page ninety nine uh to explain what 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 construction means and again there there's a slight difference here uh from what Lenten says we should take from the idea of the social construction fact in her book she talks about, specifically talks about charles's mills's debate uh with uh with uh, this uh chicago professor barnard hesse whose whose uh, work in fact appears on the recommended list of of your um of your syllabus and and they disagree right and there's a there's an even a youtube video of them debating social construction um so uh you know he says well there are good reasons why uh why we should take this conservationist position and and that's also something that i tend to agree with um and there's a really cool point at the end of page 99 when 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 he says whiteness has been uh the central racial category the normative reference point the the default mode i mean we we talk about whites and non-whites not of blacks and non-blacks and we speak of whites and people of color but not people of color and people of non-color right so uh, it, it is definitely a social construct uh, i mean this underlines the, the this this our understanding and reification of this idea of race is meaning something white versus non-white and and this is where he you know talks about some of the readings that we discussed in in in, in the lectures thus far which is you know all the a ton, a ton of books about the United States. You know how did this group become white, or did it become white? You know the Irish, the Italians, the Jews, etc. Um, and then uh, yeah, he says uh, uh, race. This is the title of the subsection. Could could be seen not merely as an institution, but an institution so important that it would that would arguably count as part of the basic structure of 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 of, of the modern state. Uh, And then, you know, this idea of a racial state associated with the work by David Theo Goldberg is precisely right, he says. Um, So, um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, so he, at some point he discusses uh, international relations scholarship, which is uh, helpful for those of you who are interested in this field. And he says, you know, his own work and he's been talking about global um, white supremacy for a very long time and and uh and he says yes this has been objected to many many times uh, and we can even talk about which part of it was most objected to global white or supremacy Um, but he says the case for the for this concept can be made even stronger if we if we take into account the actual patterns of international relations and communication you know there was no white supremacy headquarters there was no you know, there's no phone number or, or a website you can go to oh yeah who where, where's this global white supremacy center? but um just because there's no centralized planetary seat of formal white governing power uh that does not mean that there is a there's not a binding transoceanic and and trans uh, community or links so racial ideologies circulated globally assumptions of non-white inferiority and the legitimacy of white rule are taken for granted um, and and he talks about the you know paris 1919 or post-world war one versailles conference where uh, the six anglo-saxon nations came together to stop japan from uh, introducing the so-called racial equality clause into the League of Nations Covenant. This is a really interesting uh, history. We don't we don't really know it well in Canada, but we were part of it. Uh, and, and to uh, it's interesting how uh, this, this Anglo-Saxon of, of the of the early 20th century is being reconstituted today uh, through things such as kanzuk and the Five Eyes. The Five Eyes is a global network of intelligence agencies, about 20 of them, that belong to um, the five countries, Australia, New New Zealand, uh, the UK, um, Canada, and the United States, that that once (laughs) came together to prevent Japan from uh, asking for racial inequality. So so he says, yeah, this history needs to be understood. Uh, We are and it is and it was understood by afro modern political thought so what we're doing right now is recovering a concept a concept that was obvious and uncontroversial to theorists uh back then Um, uh, but then you know we decided to pretend that it's no longer relevant um and it this systematic politics of forgetting or willful uh, uh, amnesia or abhasia or however you want to call it, myopia, um, is a demonstration um, of liberalism. And so we've come to, to this section on of liberalism and race on page 105, in which he... Um, Yeah, which basically he provides you with a critique of liberalism that in many ways parallels the uh, Inayatullah and Blaney piece. So, whereas they focus on global political economy, Mills focuses on uh, political uh, theory and contemporary political uh, theory. And he says... uh, uh, you know the feminist example on gender could be illuminating as a as a model uh, to to think about race. Second wave feminist philosophers they faced the task of advancing a feminist agenda in a theoretical and conceptual universe dominated by male f- frameworks. And then there was a big debate. One was to repudiate repudiate liberalism, and also Marxism at the time. Uh, another approach was to argue that liberalism's key assumptions and values were not. Intrinsically problematic, but needed to be recast uh, or, rec- or rethought in the light of its sexist inclusions. Um, so, so yeah, you could see that uh, you know his own preference, and uh, I guess evolution as a thinker is uh, from Marxism to to what we talked about before uh, he calls uh black uh, radical liberalism and he reconceptualizes liberalism and and he says that this would have several virtues and he provides you know provides you with uh, uh with with said virtues in fact this is all coming from his book black rights white wrongs the critique of racial liberalism which is from 2017 and it's sort of a sort of you know a large oxford university press book uh, that talks about this his entire opus of work so so this helps us then set up the discussion on race and the rethinking of justice uh, which is the last um uh, section of of his chapter and you know this is he comes back to this idea the need to decolonize what, what he and others think of um, imperial liberalism, and he, again he t- talks about feminist liberals uh, as being right to, in in trying to reclaim rather than repudiate liberalism, and he thinks that this is uh, this is the right approach. Um, and so, and so he provides you with his case; he makes a makes a very strong case. Um, in in adds which brings us back to this philosophy of race, ontological discussion from the beginning, race cannot be subsumed under other, other ter- categories of justice because other metrics of social oppression also exist, such as gender and race. Um, so so at the very end, he makes a case on for um, the concept uh, uh, of corrective justice. This is what he talks about. The R word reparations, and you know, I invited you before to comment on that and think about it. Uh, provided you with some questions that you can respond to um, in your in the discussion board as well as in your blogs. So this is uh, a, a recap of that discussion that we had, and and you know, it provides you with. Uh, um, uh with with lots of food for todd i, I particularly like his analogy on page 117 when, when he says if i give you twenty dollars uh because i'm feeling sorry for you that's not the same as if i give you twenty dollars to repay the money i borrowed you f- from you last month in both cases twenty dollars have gone from me to you but the first case is an act of charity while the second case is the repayment of a debt so the answer to the question of what nature of transaction depends uh, should we should have depends not merely on the material transfer of a twenty dollar bill, so that's this kind of objective transfer, but but on the intersubjective or subjective description uh, under which it is carried out. So we have to understand that this is happening because it's the right thing to do, not because you know we feel sorry for the third world or the global south. Um, so um, and. I also like his discussion on page uh, 118 about the point uh, concerning a memorialization. Uh, so you know, wh- wh- whenever you travel to capitals of western cities, especially of white settler states, uh, you will have uh, no shortage of uh, museums and memorials devoted to various aspects of World War II and the Holocaust. Um, But, uh, yeah, what about, uh, you know, what about memorials for Spain's Amerindian Holocaust or the South Asian victims of avoidable famines under British rule? So, specifically, he's thinking about the 1943 Great Bengal Famine in which millions perished because the British high command thought that, you know, they should send... Uh, food supplies to places such as Yugoslavia and Greece, which were under Nazi occupation at the time rather than to Bengal, which they ruled you know, which was part of the british Empire and this caused all kinds of death and uh, uh, unnecessary death and you know people like Churchill, whom we celebrate in in, in all kinds of ways, uh, are implicated in this arguably uh, so what about uh, the Congolese who died under Belgium King Leopold II um, and you know of course every uh, every debate uh, this past summer was precisely about that what do we do with uh, King Leopold's statues in Belgium and most of them were taken down in fact so uh, yeah and he also mentions uh, Germany you know why Germany is pretty good at at uh, atoning for its uh, crimes between 1933 and 1945. Well, what about the Nama and Herero people that were exterminated uh, in German Southwest Africa? And yeah, this was essentially, he calls it, Vernichtungsbefehl, um, an order to exterminate people, which is you know, one of the first cases of modern genocide. And he talks about British and French and others, so we can talk about Canada as well. Um, so, there you go. I mean, his conclusion is that race can only be transcended by facing and working through it, not by evading it. And that's that's the kind of basic uh, con- uh, constructionist uh, uh, position. Uh, so, you know, instead of eliminating it, we should uh, work through it. And that's something that I agree with. And this is... Uh, this is also one of the premises of the course, and this is why we ended up uh, with Charles Mills' call uh, for more of that at the very end. So here we are. This is the last lecture. Um, I hope I hope you will continue to uh, discuss the readings uh, and, and blog about them. I know PIFA, PIFAs are coming up. Well, paid-forward assignments uh, for next week, and this is going to be exciting for me to see what you've come up with. I'm sure it's going to be exciting for you to see what your peers have come up with. We're going to have a fabulous discussion about that. In the meantime, since this is my uh, last radio Surgeon Lecture, I want to thank you for being wonderful, for being patient, uh, especially because I said at the very beginning in my YouTube lecture, uh, this is... uh, uh, this was this was a rather quickly put together class. None of these lectures were edited because I didn't have a studio and and the right equipment uh, to do editing and to make them uh, nice and jazzed up and and whatnot. Uh, so it was basically what you see is, was what you got. I hope it wasn't too terrible. Uh, apologies for all these interruptions, police sirens, paramedics, uh, LRT, kids coming into my into my room while I'm recording this. I I hope that was uh, forgive uh, that you'll forgive me for that, and I thank you uh, again for listening. And I look forward to the next steps in our class. Uh, And of course, uh, wish you all the best. Uh, Take care of yourself and of each other. And until the next class in ECH or API. Thank you.